Welcome to another PI World podcast. This is an audio-only version offered as another way to enjoy our great content. A full video version can be seen on piworld.co.uk, where you can find many more videos of interest to investors. Good afternoon, everybody, and uh, thank you for taking the time to join our results webinar. I'm going to talk briefly about H&T, who we are, what we do, some of the progress that we've made over the last few months. Dai will then take us through the numbers in a bit more detail, and I'll finish up by talking about where we go from here and the investment case for H&T. In terms of who we are and what we do, uh, we've been around a long time, actually. This is our 126th year, 273 stores across the UK, and very much a stores-based business. We've been investing significantly, actually, over the last two or three years in making our online presence and the digital support for our stores ever better. But we are and will remain for the foreseeable future a stores-based business. And we'll talk a bit about why that is a little bit later on. We are the UK's largest pawnbroker uh, by some margin. We are also a top six retailer of pre-owned and new jewellery and watches, which comes as a bit of a surprise to some people, but it's it's a trade press sort of ranking and we are in the top six and we're very proud of that actually. We also do other things. We do foreign exchange, we, we do Western Union. We are their largest UK carrier by transaction volume or we'll cash a check for you if you need to cash a check, etc. Those things we do primarily to bring footfall to the stores. There are strong market drivers behind H&T having a structural growth opportunity. The target audience is bigger than it was for two reasons. The first one is our typical loan is about £200. The supply of small sum credit is far more constrained than has been the case probably for a generation, actually, at a time when demand is increasing. So the target audience for pawnbroking is growing. Similarly, the target audience for our pre-owned and new jewellery and watches is also growing as pre-owned becomes far more mainstream within the overall jewellery and watch market. Um, pre-owned is the growth um, area, growth element, and pre-owned is really what we do. Over 80% of our retail sales are pre-owned. Therefore, the, the, the demand for that is growing and the target audience for it is also growing. And there are still opportunities to expand our footprint. In terms of how we generate our revenues, we are overwhelmingly a pawnbroker and jewellery retailer. So around about 80% of our gross profit, we talk gross profit because we don't attribute central overhead by product. So if you like, this is a product contribution. About 80% of it is derived from our core activities, of pawnbroking and jewellery retail. The other aspects of our business contribute footfall and contribute profit. And I will talk in more detail about some of those things shortly. In terms of what we've been up to over the last six months, it's been a, a very busy six months, and we think we've made you know, real progress over that time. We've got 22% growth in pledge lending, pledge being the core driver of revenues and earnings. It's now at record levels. That's driven a 14% growth in the pledge book, which is a bit more, actually, than I think people were expecting in the half year. Retail sales continues to grow, up 11%, with online sales up almost 80% and now representing about a quarter of our total retail sales. Interestingly, though, half of those sales are fulfilled through a store. 
when somebody goes online, finds the item they want and decide that they'd like to see it before they complete their purchase, we'll happily send it to a store so that they can go and see it, decide whether they like it or choose not to buy it and then proceed with the purchase. So about half of our online retail sales are actually fulfilled through a store, which I think shows how critical stores are to this business. Foreign exchange transactions up 19%. We said we were going to broaden the range of currencies. We have those other currencies up 37%. Outside of the products, we've opened eight new stores and closed two due to underperformance. We've furbished about 35, or we had done at the half year, target to do about 50 in the year. We've increased capacity at our jewellery processing centre, which was operating beyond capacity by opening a second facility adjacent to the former. That will enable us to accommodate significant further growth by increasing the capacity that we have to process jewellery and models at the centre. We implemented phase one of our IT strategy in the second half of last year. Phase two is in development. Phase one actually is receiving further upgrades and further functionality enhancements. So there's a lot going on there. From a governance point of view, we strengthen the board. We have a new chairman, four new non-executive directors. We've integrated our websites in July. That means the established 1897 brand has now been retired and it's all haloed under a single halo brand HT. We raised additional funding in July and we were ready for consumer duty implementation in August. So I would say a very busy first half of the year in significant progress. In terms of the, the real highlights to the numbers, before I hand over to Di, these are the, the key ones. 22% increase in gross profit, 31% increase in profit before tax, costs up 19%, good reason for that, which Di will explain. Earnings per share up 24%. The reason EPS is up by less than profit is because we raised equity in the second half of last year, so there's more shares in circulation than was the case a year ago. Net asset value continues to grow. Pledge book up 35% year on year, 14% in the six months leading up to the end of the first half this year. Net asset value per share up, dividend per share up 30% in line with profit growth. Before I hand over to Di, I just want to look at the chart on the top right-hand side. That's the jaws effectively between cost and revenue. And what you can see on there is that we are very much an H1, H2 revenue business with revenue being significantly higher in H2. It has been in each year on the chart and each year historically, actually. It will be the case again in H2 2023. So you will see the jaws between cost and revenue widen as we go through the second half of the year. I'm now going to hand over to Di, who is going to take you through the numbers in a lot more detail. Thank you, Chris. I'm going to start the presentation this afternoon with looking at our segments for gross profit and where the contribution comes from each of our product sets. As we can see in the graph, the, the biggest proportion comes from our and our retail product. Together, they contribute 80% towards our gross profit. The remainder of our products are important to us, and the reason for that is because they bring footfall to our stores. And that allows us to leverage and grow the revenue line of our existing store estate and also emphasizes the importance of the store estate to our business across the UK. Our products have varying margin. We can see in the table at the left of the screen, each product has a different margin. I'll go into those individually when we go through the products and specifically to address the retail margin, which we have seen dip to 28%. I'm going to move on to the income statement. 
For the income statements, I'm going to use the disclosure that we report where we have our IFRS 9 charges included in other direct expenses. So looking at the gross profit line, which is 55 million pounds, we have seen that grow 15% year on year. And that in turn has seen our profit before tax grow, as Chris said, by 31% to 8.8 million pounds. What we see that translate to is a growth in our earnings per share 24% 24% up in earnings per share and an earnings per share of 16.26p per share, notwithstanding the additional equity we issued in October last year. Cost control is very important to us and close cost control in this environment is, is what we are focusing on and I'll spend some time going into that in more detail. So if we look at operating costs, I have to remove my IFRS 9 charges from my cost base. So by doing that, my cost base is 40 million pounds. That is 19% up on the same time last year. Our cost base is volumetric and fixed. And the primary driver for the increase in our costs is our employee related costs, which contribute about 60% to our overall cost base. Now, those costs saw a growth of 21%, and that is down to two factors. The first being due to headcount, which we planned for and, and is heads that we were filling for vacancies predominantly in 2022 and also into 2023. 2022, particularly because we had vacancies in our stores, in our IT teams and in our jewellery centre, as most people would have found that hiring staff in 2022 was a little harder than, than previously found. 2023, our hiring is going as planned, but actually a little slower but not on the same level as we saw in 2022. The remainder of the increase is due to the pay rise. Pay rise in two means. One, in terms of the increase we've applied across the board to our employees. And secondly, the timing of when we granted that pay rise. For this year, it was in January. Last year, it was in April. So we've brought it forward by three months to ensure that we can look after our teams. Non-pay related costs also saw some increase and that is where we saw suppliers passing costs onto us at rates that were above inflation. For the first half of this year, those costs are now in the run rate and we expect that in the latter half of the year, these costs will normalize and the overall cost for the year will be able to stabilize. What that means, if we look back to the graph that Chris showed us earlier on operational jaws, Our cost curve in terms of the rate of growth of costs will flatten slightly and we'll see the benefits of the growth in the revenue in the top line as we await it to the second half of the year with our foreign currency income as well as our retail income in November and December. To generate our business, we have a strong balance sheet and that balance sheet remains strong. It's underpinned by inherent and conservatively valued precious metals and cash balances. Our net asset value at the end of the year, 166 million. Within that, we have our assets of 230 million. And there's where we see our working capital investment into our pledge book, 114 million, our cash and our inventory. At the end of the year, we had a net debt position of 17.1 million pounds. That's about 15 million up on where we ended last year, December. And if we have a look at where that funding has come from and where that funding has been deployed into in the course of the six months, 
We've used an additional 15 million pounds from our bank funding. Our bank has increased that funding as well. I'll touch on that a little bit later. But that 15 million of pounds has been deployed into growing our working capital, which is our pledge book and inventory, which we saw a slight increase of around two million pounds. The remainder of the cash has gone into our capital investments. That is to refurbish our stores, acquire and open new stores, as well as um, tax interest and paying dividends. As I mentioned, our total banking facility was increased this year in July, actually. That increased to 50 million pounds. It was previously 35 million. And that was on favorable terms with no change to the covenants or to the maturity profile. If I turn our attention to our individual product set and where we are seeing the growth in our revenue line, I'll start with pawnbroking. That is our biggest contribution and core product to the business. It contributed £32 million or 65% of total gross profits. And that growth has come from the increase and in continued strong demand we are seeing in the lending to our customers in the first half of the year. That lending grew by 22%. And on the lending that has driven the pledge book growth, we earn a yield of 60%. The rest of the metrics that we see across our pledge book have remained intact. And what we are seeing is our customers are borrowing from us an amount of money that they need, which is normally about £200 for the amount of time that they need to borrow it for, which is about 97 days, with no changes to our LTVs and to our redemption rates. Retail, we've seen growth in retail by 11%, generated revenue of £23 million. And for us, the growth in online has also been positive. So that growth in the contribution from our online services has grown, as Chris mentioned slightly earlier, 80% for the year. And that is split in two parts. So online revenue for us is revenue where a customer originates and concludes a transaction online, as well as originates and concludes a transaction in store. We call that um, click and view in store. If I turn our attention to our margins, we can see that our margins have dropped this quarter or this half to 28%. The reason for that is threefold. There's the mix between new and pre-owned items, the mix within pre-owned items itself, along with our decision to reduce inventory levels and in particular certain watch brands for which we applied a discount. So the combination of those three has driven our margin down slightly. What we have done to address this is deal with the inventory levels. That is now at a level at which we are comfortable and we have put our prices up in the second half of this year, so we are expecting our margin to improve slightly. What is important to note is with this reduction in the margin, we have seen an offset for the gross profit impact in our scrap margin. So if I turn our attention to our scrap margins, it's made up of two parts. First is gold purchasing and second, pawnbroking scrap. If we look at the graph on the far right-hand side, which is pawnbroking scrap, we can see that the gross profit that we have earned through the process of moving the slow inventory that we had has generated a profit that more than offsets the compression we have seen on margins. Foreign currency for us is a growth opportunities. 
Um, we have seen record levels of transactions. And as the momentum builds into the peak summer months, this is for us a future growth opportunity. The final slide from me is on our other services. Other services for us are important. They bring footfall to our stores and they contribute in, in main two particular products, one being money transfer and one being check cashing. Money transfer is our relationship with Western Union and that brings about 500,000 transactions through our stores on an annual basis. The one point to note is personal lending. We've seen that drop as expected as we no longer offer the personal lending products and that will roll off in due course as the outstanding amounts are collected. I'd like to hand back to Chris to take us through strategic objectives. Thank you, Di. We are a stores-based business and we get asked all sorts of different questions, stats about our stores. So what we thought we would do is to put some stats up. We will update these. We may add to it actually, but we'll update these each time we report going forward. So 273 stores, an increase of a net six, eight opened, two closed. Annual revenue per store at a bit less than three quarters of a million. Average pledge book per store a bit over 400,000. And about, well, actually 400,000 pounds gross profit generated on average per store. So our stores really do generate significant revenue for the group. We've reduced our inventory levels a little bit down to 84,000 per store. And 56% of our employees have greater than three years service. Turnover is around about 20%, which is low for a retail style business. As far as our leases are concerned, the average rental cost, £27,000, down a little bit on a year ago. 98% of our stores have a rent negotiation or break uh, on a term of less than five years or five years or less, in which case every year somewhere about 20 to 25% of our store uh, rents come up for review, we are still able to negotiate very attractive renewal terms for our leases. In terms of the cost to fit out a new store, it ranges between 50 and up to 200,000. That depends on what the store was used for before and the extent to which we have to put security and other measures in. If it was used, for example, as a jewelers or a building society before, then it costs less. The average cash investment between 150 and 300,000, 28 stores, opened in the last two and a half years and without exception all of those stores either are already or will be profitable in no more than their second year of operation. So some key stats about the stores. In terms of what we've been doing as I said we've added eight. The green dots on the map are where we've opened new stores. Uh, somebody very eagle-eyed yesterday pointed out there are only seven dots. That's because we opened two stores in West Yorkshire covered by a single dot. We bought 70 stores four years ago now, actually in 2019, and those are both fully integrated and interestingly are growing collectively at a rate above that of the overall store portfolio across the product range, but particularly pawnbroking and retail, which does show, I think, that adding stores to our network can give us incremental growth. As some of you may know, we acquired Swiss Time Services, which is a watch servicing and repair business, last year. This has brought significant watch expertise to the group, which is already serving us well, actually, and is beginning to add relationships and other things into the watch industry that we simply didn't have before. Refurbishments, we've done 35. We've opened the Jewelry Centre. We will intend to do approximately 50 store refurbishments this year. That puts us on a 
five to six year rolling program, which we think is about right for a business such as this. And there are opportunities to expand the store estate. One thing I do want to make clear to investors, though, is that we are not chasing a number with stores. We will only open if we can identify the right location to be in. We use quite a lot of data to help us do that. And having done so, find an appropriate unit in exactly that location on attractive terms. And we'd rather wait a little bit to find the right unit rather than forging ahead to just hit a number for stores. There are opportunities. We will be opening further stores in the second half of the year. On the IT side, phase one of our system, which we call Evo, was implemented last year into our stores. It's had further functionality enhancements. Phase two is under development, and that will be rolled out across the rest of the store estate and the rest of the business over the next two years, actually. Um, Click and Collect has been implemented on foreign exchange. That's gone really well to begin with, actually. We're really pleased with it. It only went in in June, so it's early days, but early progress is really strong. And our online service, we've merged the two websites. It's now integrated, and our aim is to enable customers to make it as easy as possible to transact with us, whichever channel they choose. So in terms of being a sustainable business going forward and from an ESG lens. We've done a lot of work around the board. Peter McNamara stepped down from the board after 17 years and 14 years as chairman. Simon Walker, who joined the board last year, became chairman. And he's been working hard to broaden the range of skills and experiences that sit around the board table. We have four new non-executive directors who've joined us uh, very recently now, and they have a very broad range of skills, which will really support the growth of the group going forward. Um, We work closely with Fair Share. For those that don't know, Fair Share is one of the larger uh, food-related charities. We've donated a bit over 600,000 meals so far, and we're quite proud of that, actually. Uh, We will continue to evolve the governance structure, and like all companies, we're very focused on the carbon footprint, scope three, and our employees, who we really do try to look after, and making sure they're properly rewarded will remain priority for the group. So looking at where we go from here, there are macroeconomic reasons to believe that this business has a significant short and medium term growth opportunity. On the pawnbroking side, we believe that demand will continue to grow for the foreseeable, partly because of demand for credit being very, very pertinent right now, but also and largely because of the withdrawal of supply of small sum credit from the market. Uh, It's much more difficult now to find a legitimate place to borrow a couple of hundred pounds, and 200 pounds is our median loan size, your options are very limited now. And for that reason, we believe there is a systemic growth opportunity for pawnbroking and for H&T in particular as the market leader. On the retail side, and as I said earlier, we believe that demand will remain robust, and in particular for pre-owned products, which represent good value for money a store of value, and particularly for our younger customers, and we have a large number of younger customers, they are much more focused than perhaps previous generations have been on sustainability and environmental factors. So we think pre-owned jewellery and watches is a growth opportunity, and pre-owned jewellery and watches is what we do. So it's a focus for us and a growth opportunity. Foreign currency we see as a growth opportunity for the group, expanding the range of currencies and click and collect. On the cost side, we believe, as Di said earlier, that the majority of this year's cost inflation is now built into the run rate and therefore that cost inflation in the second half of the year will be lower than it was in the first half, whilst at the same time we've got strong momentum on the revenue lines.
So why would you invest in H&T? We are the clear market leader, 126 years, a diversified portfolio of products across 273 stores, within which we are the UK's largest pawnbroker and a top six jewellery and watch retailer. We think those are growth areas of the market. We have 273 stores today. We will be growing the store estate over time whilst investing in our digital capabilities. So we are the market leader. We aim to deliver strong returns. We set out a target in October to get to a sustainable post-tax ROE in the mid-teens. We hope to get there next year, 2024. We have a progressive dividend policy with a minimum two times cover. We've increased the dividend this time in line with profits, and that represents about a 40% payout ratio. We don't have a stated payout ratio, but we do have a minimum cover requirement of times two. There is a structural growth opportunity, which I've talked about, and I won't dwell on again just now. We aim to do what we do responsibly. We are investing in customer service and in the communities in which we operate. We are very much a community-based business. And in fact, many of our employees in our stores in particular are drawn from the communities and the ethnicities that we serve. It's really important to us. And accelerating demand is something I've already mentioned. We believe our business model is sustainable. Pledge lending is effectively non-recourse asset finance. It's collateralized by precious metal, watches and jewellery. We do not lend against depreciating assets. Therefore, the collateral that supports the pledge book has an inherent value and is conservatively valued. So there's a sustainability to the security cover for our lending. There is no recourse to the borrower ever at any time. We do have strong customer advocacy. We're very proud of our trust pilot scores, a strong control culture, and we will continue to maintain prudent underwriting policies. We will not chase LTV in order to drive growth. Our intention is to serve more people whilst keeping the core ratios around pawnbroking broadly stable. So that's all Di and I wanted to say just for now. Thank you for listening so far. And now I'm very happy to open it up to questions. Tremendous, Chris. Thank you very much indeed. So first question, is there a greater risk of FCA scrutiny since most subprime players are now out of the market? Well, there's always a risk of FCA scrutiny. FCA do look at pawnbroking. They are have been historically relatively benign on pawnbroking as long as you do it properly because of the fundamental tenets of pawnbroking. It's a non-recourse product. So in the event that the customer decides to walk away from the product, there's no recourse to the borrower ever. There's no residual debt. We only have the asset as cover for the loan and it's only to the asset that we can look to obtain repayment. The product is simple and transparent in that it is a daily interest product with no fees and no compounding of interest. So there are a number of factors surrounding pawnbroking generally. Um, that means as long as you do it right, do it properly, do it in a controlled way and make sure you focus on good outcomes for the customer, there's no reason to believe there will be greater scrutiny from the FCA, but it's possible. Um, if it is, then I am confident, particularly following the implementation of consumer duty in August, that we are well placed to answer any questions they have. We do have a relationship with the FCA and, and a very good one. So, yes, it's always possible that pawnbroking will come under greater scrutiny, as, as any financial services product can. I think pawnbroking generally, and HT in particular, are well placed in the event that that closer scrutiny comes. And a follow-up question, could the FCA cap interest? 
the FCA already cap interest, actually. There is a, an interest rate cap on high-cost short-term credit into which category pawnbroking broadly fits, although it's different. That interest rate cap is 0.8% per day or 24% a month, ignoring compounding. Um, our interest rates and the interest rates of pawnbroking generally are significantly lower than that interest rate cap. I guess the second part of the question is, could they reduce the cap below 0.8% a day? And the answer to that is, well, yes, they could. But our, our highest interest rate works out at about 0.3% a day relative to a current interest rate cap at 0.8% a day. So we are, we and actually pawnbrokers in general are operating significantly low, below um, current pricing limits. And with the expanding stores, how many stores is saturation or how many stores would be your target to get full cover? The number of stores in the market is considerably less than it was perhaps 10 years ago when there were, I believe, in a slightly in excess of 2,000 retail outlets around the UK offering the services that we provide. That figure is now about 800. Um, there are parts of the country where we are underrepresented or, in the case of the Northwest, Northwest and Cumbria, unrepresented. So there is scope to broaden the geographic footprint you could look to wales and the west the east and east anglia and perhaps the northwest for that but it's also the case that there are towns and cities where we have a store but that we because we use a lot of data to understand where people are and where they go we believe we're only serving part of the potential target audience because of the location of the store and in those cases and indeed we do look to open a second or subsequent store in that town or city so there are opportunities to grow the footprint. As I said before, we're not chasing a number. I could see us opening 15 to 20 stores a year for the next two or three years. Um, I think we would even then be a long way from saturation, but opening stores requires quite a lot of support because we second people to the store when we open it, and you can only do so much of that without causing yourself a problem elsewhere. We will only expand our store estate in a controlled measured and sustainable way so I, I could see us opening perhaps 15 to 20 stores a year and I could perhaps see us therefore with somewhere between 300 and 350 stores as a target size for the network. And the questioner writes in the cash flow I see there was an acquisition of 1.8 million plus a 0.4 million of intangibles how many stores does this cover? So that's for some stores that we bought during the course of the year. So I think that was for two stores. Um, and the intangibles is the spend that we do or we deploy into the development of our in-house IT system, which is what we call Evo. So that is a system that we have invested in both this year and in prior years. We're in phase two of that at the moment, and we are excited to deploy it as it carries on into phase three. So we're probably two years into a, a three-year phase of the project. So we're hoping that by the end of 2025, beginning of 2026, we will come to the edge of the project. It will allow us to be able to provide the level of data um, and set ourselves up for success from an IT point of view. Just to add to that, actually, we have a target list <coughs> of locations where we believe we could and would like to site a store at some point. In the event that um, an existing business 
that's in exactly the right location comes available for purchase, then that is something we would consider because, of course, if you buy an existing business, you're buying an existing revenue stream. But it has to be in exactly the right place. We did acquire stores in Bradford in the first half of the year. And how important is the experience of staff in the stores? It's critical. Our business is all about our stores and the interaction and the relationship that's built between those those, uh, colleagues in stores and the customers who come into the store. We staff our stores to enable them to have time to interact and to build a relationship if that's what the customer wants. So our people are absolutely critical to the future success of the business. That's one of the reasons where why we decided to pull forward the annual pay review this year, actually. Um, and I'm also pleased that, you know, over 50-odd percent, not far off 60% of our people have at least three years service and we have relatively low levels of staff turnover. But the answer to your question is, our people are critical to the future success of the business. And how many years' experience do they have to have to be competent enough and not to be having someone overseeing them? They've always got someone overseeing them. Everybody's got a boss, including me, actually. So when someone joins us, if they have no previous experience, they go through uh, an accreditation process that we have here, a training program that adds different skills and different skill sets to their existing skill set. And as they do, they progress through pay bands, actually, as well as through the, through the ranks. And as someone gets more and more skills, They can take on a bigger job. They can take on perhaps a deputy management role. So it varies from person to person. Um, Our stores actually are not all the same. So there are some stores that are more retail focused. There are some stores that are more pawnbroking focused. There are some stores that are more pawnbroking focused in certain types of gold and jewellery. Parts of London, for example, there's a large Asian customer base. So it's different types of skills within those jewellery sets. But we have we have a very clearly defined training and accreditation process that the overwhelming majority of our people do go through. Um, it, it can take a couple of years for somebody to become fully covered under all of the various training models, or they can do it more quickly if that's what they want to do. To a degree, it's tailored to how quickly somebody wants to progress through um, the company and through the skill sets. And we also have stores that have specialist skills. We've got a store in Glasgow, for example, that's got specialist watch skills in it. So there's no one simple answer to the question, but there's a very clear, very well-defined training, development and accreditation process for everybody that joins us. I would say typically a couple of years, but it can be quicker than that if somebody really wants to progress. Tremendous. Thank you very much. And how does the gold price affect your profitability? Less than it used to is the answer. Um, the short-term changes in the gold price have limited impact, actually, on the retail price of a piece of jewellery. And people who are borrowing tend to borrow what they need, not the maximum that they can borrow. And there's a number of reasons why they choose to do that, all driven around their desire to get their items back so they can use the service again in future. So because people borrow what they need, generally, fluctuations in the value of the items doesn't really change that borrowing need. Um, Gold purchase, often for scrap actually, but gold purchase over the counter is a much smaller portion of our business than was the case perhaps 10 or 12 years ago. That part of the business is more closely correlated to the gold price because a higher gold price 
increases people's propensity to want to sell. Um, but it's, <coughs> in gross margin terms, less than 10% of our business now. So we are obviously exposed a bit to the gold price, but far less than used to be the case some years ago. And what are the covenants on the debt? Is it one bank or a syndicate? No, one bank. So our bankers are have has only one bank, and that is with Lloyd's. So that facility increased up to fifty million pounds. It was thirty-five million pounds before. No change to the covenants. We have three of those: um, two and a half times leverage, four times interest cover, and one and a half times fixed charges. Uh, we did see the interest rates tick up slightly when we re- when we got the additional facilities, but still. Um, happy with the terms that we have. We've also had no changes to the maturity, so that is currently in place with the with the maturity date of the RCF out to December 2025, with the option to extend for what we call plus one plus one, so an extra year at each year between now and then. And how do you think about the dividend policy in the overall capital allocation plan? Sure. So our dividend policy is a progressive dividend policy. So for us, it's important that we follow the trend that we see with our revenue. We've seen that this year. Uh, we have increased our dividend to six to to six and a half p, and that is in line with the growth we've seen in our in our PBT, which is thirty percent year on year. It is a progressive dividend policy. Um, Chris mentioned slightly earlier. We don't have a stated payout ratio. Um, but what we have seen is it's around 40%. Um, and for us, ensuring that we maintain our dividend progressive policy and in line with that is, is something that we do look to do. And why do you think the average loan duration is shorter? <laughs> now, that, that's actually quite a, a, a deep question. Um, there's a number of reasons behind it. So at the moment, we have a redemption rate, which is slightly higher than we would have seen historically. It's around 85. It moves a bit from month to month, but it's been 85, 86% for at least the last two years now. And as you, so that means we've got a few more people paying their loans back. They are paying it back more quickly. So average time on book is now around 97 days. It's been at that level for about a year. Historically, about 10% higher than that at 108 days. We think it is because customers are probably a bit savvier than they're sometimes given credit for by people. They may have been users of other forms of credit, which are now withdrawn, and they are very focused on using the pawnbroking product in the way it's designed, which is to borrow, in their case, a small sum over a relatively short term, redeem the loan, collect their items and then come back next time they need to use it. The typical gap, actually, between a loan being repaid and the customer coming back to borrow again is also around about three months. So typically, people are using the product two or three times a year. We think this is people being very prudent. We think they're being prudent in terms of how much they're borrowing. Average loan size has ticked up a bit, but not significantly. People are borrowing what they need and perhaps their need is slightly higher than it was, which is why we're seeing a bit of an increase in average loan size. But we also think they're focused on repaying the loan when they can. It's a daily interest product with no fees and no compounding. So if you use it for 38 days, you pay for 38 days. If you use it for 48 days, you pay for 48 days. And they know that. 
So I think when they are able to repay the loan, it's very much in the interest to do so when they do. Um, it is a bit counterintuitive. I readily accept that we've got people paying their loans off more quickly given economic conditions, but it seems to have been solid at that level for over a year now. And we just think it's people being prudent and using the product in the way it's intended. Thank you very much. And if people don't access small sums of short-term credit with you, where do they go? Um, well, <laughs> the small sum short-term credit market is far more constrained than has been the case in the past. Um, there are still uh, online lenders that you can go to. Uh, a lot of people are using buy now, pay later, although that is about to enter at some point the regulatory net. And sad to say, there is a rise in unlicensed lending. We have seen you know, evidence of that in parts of the country in which we operate. Um, but it is much more difficult now. Friends and family would be another place that people go. But there are far less legitimate places now to go to borrow a small sum over the short term. Um, and it's one of the reasons we think that there's you know, a real growth opportunity for pawnbroking. I can't answer the question empirically. There are still lenders. There is still buy now, pay later, but a, a, and there are friends and family, but a significant proportion inevitably, I think, is going to unlicensed lenders. And when you refurbish a store, what sort of uplift or is there any uplift that you see? It's actually the other way around. Um, one of our biggest challenges as a pawnbroker is to get people to cross the threshold. People haven't been used to using a pawnbroker for a long time for a whole range of factors and, and crossing the threshold is a bit of a challenge, I think, for people quite often because they may have preconceptions of what a pawnbroking store is like. So what, what we are seeking to do with refreshing our store estate is to make sure our stores look attractive, look modern, light, airy, and somewhere actually you would want to go if you've perhaps not been in there before. Put another way, we think potential customers are reluctant to enter a store if it looks a bit scruffy, perhaps. So we think it's more linked to um, encouraging and making it an attractive place for new and existing customers to do it. Now, that said, there are stores where we do a full refit for a specific purpose. So we've recently done that in Bolton. <clears throat> Bolton is one of our larger retail sales stores and was operating at capacity. So in the case of Bolton, we've reconfigured the store to enable more customers to be served more quickly by the staff that work there. And there is a demonstrable uplift in performance already as a result. But by and large, our view is that we need to keep our store estate looking fresh, light and airy and not allow it to get scruffy. So we're on probably a five or six year rolling program now of refurbishment. And there, there is an uplift in performance, but it's primarily designed to make it a welcoming place for people to want to come, especially if they've not crossed the threshold before and there's a certain amount of capex. So how much operational gearing is there within the company at the moment as, as revenues go up? So, yes, there is capex. And if I follow on from the point Chris made is um, how much capex do we have that we set aside for our stores? Um, at the moment, it's more it's in line with where we were the prior year. So that capex is allocated at £4.2 million to be able to refurbish and refresh our stores. And a little over a million when we consider what we're going to invest in our IT. If we say how much leverage is in, in the balance sheet, maybe it would be better to look at the, at the cash flow, um, which we've got in the pack, where we can see where the cash that we use is being deployed. 
So with the additional funding that we have from Lloyd's, we also raised our, um, some additional equity at the end of last year. We can see that that's been deployed really into our working capital. So it's, and that is really the pledge book, a little bit into inventory, but predominantly into the pledge book. And then into the capital investments. And then in that capital investment line is where we see those investments into our stores, um, into the opening of our new stores, um, and of course, there's our intangible, which is Evo, and the other the other uh, cash flow items that we have is really our, our interest dividends and tax. So, for us, it's a level of gearing that we are currently comfortable with. We we did uh, when we raised our equity, um, think that it would be good to ensure when we raise debt that we raised it in more or less the same proportion, and that is what we've done. Um, and it's a level at which we're comfortable at. We don't feel that this is a business which we would like to overgear. Um, so at the moment, that is the, the current the ratios that we have. We don't have a stated gearing uh, policy or gearing ratio target either. Our job is, um, operationally is to drive footfall to the stores um, and for our people in those stores to then interact with the customer and turn them into uh, a customer of one or more products of the group. So the, we're predominantly a fixed-cost business. So... The operational leverage is huge. And if you look at the, the pawnbroking pledge book, it's more than twice the size that it was 18 months, less than two years ago. Um, at the end of 2021, it was 60 million, 66 million to be precise. Uh, and it was 114 at the end of June and it grew in July. So that's significant growth in our core pawnbroking product with without commensurate increase in, in costs. And what you'll see in the second half of this year is the cost inflation will flatten and the revenue momentum will grow. So there is considerable operational leverage in, in the business. And that's the end of questions. Chris, do you have any closing remarks? I hope it's been useful uh, to you all as, as retail investors. Um, we welcome feedback and it's the first time we've done this. I think we will do it each time we report in the future because it's important. So thank you for your time. Thank you for joining us and have a good evening. Thank you. Thank you. PI World videos and podcasts are for general information and interest. They do not constitute any kind of recommendation or inducement to buy shares of any company. PI World is not offering any kind of financial advice and nothing in our material should be taken as such.